The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you would find your place this morning in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 today. And as you are turning there, let me ask you to think about a couple of scenarios. Maybe this will get your mind kind of pointed in the right direction. I want you to think about the difference between two first days. The first one is the first day of school when you are in high school. And I am making uh, an assumption here because I'm going to I'm going to use myself as an example and I think many of you would probably share this same situation. I'm thinking of myself on the first day of school like maybe 10th or 11th grade and I know that when I get there I've gone to school since I was in kindergarten with this same group of kids. Okay? So I'm coming to school for the first day for, let's say, 11th grade, but it's not unknown. I've been to the school before. I've been around these people before. Uh, even some of the teachers I probably know, some of the teachers. And so there's a, a lot of known things, okay? So think about that first day of school in high school. Now, now think about the difference between that first day and the first day of class, if you were to go to college. Particularly, maybe you decide if you want to study a certain thing, maybe you go to college and you go somewhere away from home. Think about that first day. What's different? It's a new environment. It's a new place. It's new people. Now, those are the obvious differences. What about the similarities? You're still in a school. There's still teachers. There's still other students. You're in a classroom. Right? There's still people around you. You're still in a room with people. But what's the feeling? Is it different? Is your mindset different? Is your level of anxiety maybe different? See, here's what I'm trying to, to help us think about as we prepare to read this passage today. There are situations that can be similar, but yet the feeling and the thoughts and the emotions can be totally different. You can be in a room with people, but you feel like you're not in a room with people. Does that make sense? We'll get back to that in a minute. I want to talk today about gospel-centered fellowship, what that means, what it looks like, and do we have it, and can we get it if we don't? Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1 and go down to verse 10, and then we'll talk about a few things that the Lord has shown us today. Here's what the Bible says, Galatians 2, beginning verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up 
and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been to the uncircumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that this word that is before us would be clear to us, that we would understand what it means, that we would understand uh, what it means in our lives, how we can apply it and be obedient to it, and that your grace and mercy would be abundant so we can honor you, not just in this time, but as we leave here and put these words into practice. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to take a moment to back up just a couple of verses. Because any time a passage, a paragraph, starts with the word then, after, uh, you have to think, okay, well, what's it after? What, what came right before that? So if you look at your Bible and look at the last three verses in Galatians chapter 1, here's what you'll see. Paul is, is at the conclusion of giving a little recap of his uh, life and ministry immediately after he got saved. And here's what he says at the last part of Galatians 1, verse 22. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So you remember what was happening, what he was telling folks in this group of churches in Galatia, he was reminding them, these churches here, these Christians, they hadn't seen me. And before, they had kind of been afraid of me. But now they were hearing about me, and they heard what I was doing, and they were glorifying God. So the glory was going to God here because they, they are hearing, Christians are hearing, there's been a change in this guy. He was persecuting us, now he's preaching the same message. He's on our team now, it would appear. So he's continuing on his uh, description of what has happened, his recount, so to speak, and he's telling folks where he's going next, what happened after this. Okay, so there's three things really in today's passage, in this long paragraph, that I believe will help us, and it's, it's almost like a, a springboard off of 
the, the last week or two of what we've read and studied in Galatians. So the first thing we see in this passage this week is we should maintain a consistent message. Maintain a consistent message. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul stayed in Syria and Cilicia for 12 to 14 years uh, before he went back to Jerusalem a second time. Okay, So that's where the, the time frame that's between chapter 1 and 2, that's what picks up here. He's been in another area and he's been preaching the same gospel. So it's, it doesn't matter where he was, his message was the same. So that's a lesson to us. A consistent message is important because look what happens when he goes back up to Jerusalem. I want you to look at who he took with him. If you look in your Bible in verse 1, it says, He went with Barnabas and Titus. Now, those names ought to be vaguely familiar at least, right? Barnabas, son of encouragement. He's already been mentioned before. Titus. There's a book of the Bible in the New Testament named Titus. Okay, So there's some name recognition, but let me tell you who they are and why it's important. He's been off preaching in another area for 12 to 14 years. Now he's going back to Jerusalem, which is like home base for the church, right? And he's taking these two guys. Well, Barnabas is a Jewish Christian. Titus is a Gentile convert to Christianity. Now, that, you see how that could be an issue? Going back to Jerusalem, and here comes Paul, Mr. Super Missionary Guy, who's recently saved and been preaching for 12 to 14 years now, and he's coming back to Jerusalem, and he's got a Jewish Christian on one side, which that's a problem because it's not just a Jew, it's a Jewish Christian, okay? So that's a problem for Judaism. And then on this side, he's got a Gentile who's also a Christian. And just being a Gentile, that's a problem, right? So Paul's not scared. He's walking up into Jerusalem with a, a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian, uh, on, one on either side of him. So he goes back, he says, because of a revelation from God. God is leading him where he goes. But look what he does. He declares to these folks, these Christians in Jerusalem, the gospel that he had been preaching out among the nations. And he says he did so privately to those who seemed to be something or seem to be leaders. So here's what he's doing. He's looking for confirmation. He wants to affirm that the message he's been preaching is the right message. So he comes back, he finds the leadership in Jerusalem, and he says, hey, uh, let's compare notes. Here's what I've been preaching. This is the gospel. This is the message I've been sharing. What do you have? What do you have in your little notebook? What have you been preaching? And so they're comparing. And he's looking to make sure, that's why he's doing it privately, he's looking to make sure that what he's been preaching is correct. Because look at the end of verse 2. He says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. You know what that means? He's running the race. You remember in, uh, I'll just read it to you. The last book that the Apostle Paul wrote before he died, 2 Timothy. Do you remember what he says at the end of that letter? He says, I'm, verse, 2 Timothy 4, 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come, but I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith. So he, he's running a race, and he, he wants to make sure that while he's running, that he, his message is correct. Okay, so he's comparing notes with the other apostles. 
A.T. Robertson says that uh, it was of the utmost importance that they should see eye to eye. The Judaizers were assuming that the twelve apostles and James, the Lord's brother, would side with them against Paul and Barnabas because James was considered to be a very loyal Jew. Only problem is, these twelve apostles and James, the brother of Jesus, didn't agree with Judaism because they believed Jesus was the Messiah because they had found the Lord and they weren't about to turn away from Him. Right? So they agreed with Paul. So when Paul came back to Jerusalem and laid before these apostles, hey, this is what I'm preaching, it was all the same. It was a consistent message. So here's the question of illustration and application for us. Can you think of a time in your life, a situation, where you have been asked or maybe even pressured to compromise the truth just to keep the peace? Maybe um, you've been in a situation where you knew something wasn't exactly right and you knew if you stood on your, on your firm conviction of the truth, it might cause a little conflict and you, now you're in, a, you're in a situation, right? Do I stand on what I believe and let the chips fall? Or do I just kind of go along with the crowd so there's not a conflict? What, what's more valuable to us? Is it keeping peace? Or is it standing on the Word of God? When it comes right... And I'm not talking about in principle. I'm talking about in real life. When it comes right down to it, are we willing to stand on a conviction of God's Word as our final authority? And by the way, before whom we will give an account? Or are we willing to sacrifice the truth just so we can all get along? That's an important question that we need to answer for ourselves. We, we need to answer it as a church collectively, but individually we each have to answer that question. How firmly do I really believe God's Word? When it gets difficult, do I still believe it? Will I still stand for it? That's the type of situation Paul has found himself in, and he is willing to hold up what he believes to whatever scrutiny they want to bring because he believes this is the truth, and he has firm convictions. Maintain a consistent message. Number two, maintain a credible witness. Maintain a credible witness. You know what credible means? It means believable, convincing. Okay? A credible witness. Verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul says that not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So what does that tell us? Titus, because, remember who he is, he's a Gentile Christian. So Titus is not willing to step away from his belief that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Period. End of sentence. Not by grace through faith in Christ plus you've got to do these few things. So he was not compelled to be circumcised because he did not want to sacrifice the truth. So you read on, 
these false brethren, it was because of their presence. So the presence of Titus was a challenge to the Judaizers because he was a Greek. He was a Gentile Christian. A.T. Robertson again writes that the whole problem of Gentile Christianity was involved in the case of Titus. Whether Christianity was to be merely a modified brand of legalistic Judaism or a spiritual religion, the true Judaism, the children of Abraham by faith, which is what the Bible says. So the false teaching that was circulating around these churches did not convince Titus that he needed to be circumcised. See, these false teachers wanted to apply the law to all these Gentile Christians. They wanted to observe the liberty that Christians had not to follow the Jewish law. So when you see verse 4, these false brethren, look at how they appeared. There's two words in here that are, that are key. They were secretly brought in. And then the Bible says they sneaked in. They sneaked in because they knew that they were going to cause a problem. So they didn't just walk in the front door and uh, not, you know, a big conspicuous greeting. They didn't do that. They just kind of tried to worm their way in there. And the Bible says they were spying out the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. In other words, what do you mean you don't have to observe the law to be saved? That's what we've followed our whole life. So how come you get to have a pass on that? And they wanted to see what was going on because they wanted to bring all these new Christians underneath the law as if to say, it's Jesus plus these things. In other words, here's, what, here's the bottom line. Jesus isn't enough. He's not enough. The law is what saves you. That, that was their premise. You have to observe these things or else you're not right with God. So the basis of Christianity, the truth of Christianity, which is based entirely on the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, He didn't come to abolish the law. He fulfilled the law, right? That's what Matthew chapter 5 says near the end of that chapter. He fulfilled the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He fulfilled it because we can't. So they wanted to bring all these Christians into bondage even though they were already set free. Donald Campbell wrote this. He said, To impose circumcision on Titus would be to deny that salvation was by faith alone and to affirm that in addition to faith, there must be obedience to the law for acceptance before God. Well, Paul said, well, we didn't have that. We're not, we're not going to do that. I don't care what you say. He said, we didn't submit not even for an hour. We're not doing that. Jesus is enough and He always will be enough. So, so we're, not, we're not even entertaining such a, a crazy notion that you have to do these things in addition to the... Did you know that if Jesus' death on the cross, if His blood that was spilled on the cross, if all that was not enough, why did He do it? Why did He do it? Answer that question. That's the question nobody can answer. Anybody who wants to be legalistic and observe the law in order to be saved, you can't answer that question. Because if that's not enough, he wouldn't have done it. The only reason he did it was because it was the only way. It's the only way. Paul and the brothers did not yield to the false teaching. They testified to the truth of the gospel by not yielding. 
See, he, he, let me just let me just uh, let me try to apply this this section. Verse five says, "We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that." And I want you to be very attentive to that that little phrase. So that that's the purpose statement. Why is it so important that they did not yield to the false teachers? Why is that such a big deal? Look what it, look what it says. Look at verse five. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Okay, so you know what that means? Personal application. If we do not stand firmly on our convictions of what Scripture says, and this is our final and ultimate authority, if we don't end up there, then we are sacrificing the truth of the gospel. That means that every time we compromise what Jesus says, but for whatever reason, maybe it's to avoid conflict, maybe it's to befriend someone who we know doesn't believe like we do, and we don't want to just we just don't want to have the conversation. So, whatever the case, it doesn't matter. Any time we sacrifice or compromise the truth of God, we have actually sacrificed the gospel itself, and that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. If we fall into legalism, do you know what legalism is? Just so we can define our terms to make sure we're all on the same page. Legalism says you need to be like me. Grace from God in Christianity says we need to be like Jesus. You see the difference? It's a big difference. Because here's what happens in legalism. That means whoever happens to be uh, in charge gets to set the terms and decide who needs to be like what. So let's just say, for example, if, and I'm, I'm going to say very clearly, I'm not this way, but if I were to be legalistic as a preacher, here's what that would look like. I know what every one of you need to do and not do. I'm going to make you a list of rules. This is what you can do. This is what you shouldn't do. And if you don't abide by those lists, then I'm going to berate you and I'm going to demoralize you and I'm going to uh, discourage you and tell you how... I'm going to point my finger a lot and I'm going to tell you how bad a person you are because you're not living up to my list of do's and don'ts. Now, think, think for a minute. Don't, don't say it out loud, but just think for a minute. You ever seen a church like that? You ever heard of a church like that? It's legalism. It's legalism. Anytime we say less than this book says, that's a problem. But, anytime we say more than this book says. That's a problem. We say what the Bible says. No more, no less. Did I had to start on the way the in the way in this morning. And I'm praying for a a whole list of preachers every Sunday. And and one of my prayers for us all is that God would help us to 
say what He says. To stay anchored to His Word. No, I say this, I try to say this almost weekly. Nobody needs my opinion on anything. Everybody needs God's Word. My opinion won't get you to heaven. God's Word will get you to heaven. The sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and faith in Him alone, that will get you to heaven. But no preacher, I can't preach you into heaven. I can't tell you enough. I can't point my finger or give you a list of do's and don'ts. None of those things will save you. The blood of Jesus will save you. It's, It's that simple. That's why a consistent message and a credible witness are so vital to Christianity. And and the reason why those go together are because I'm supposed to tell you what God says. Really, that's the job of the preacher. Read and explain. Read and explain and apply. That's the job. So, I don't have to come up with a message. I don't have to um, fool myself for a moment thinking I need to be more creative than God. Like that would be possible. The Word's here. I just read it and explain it. And, and help us apply it. And so uh, I need to keep that message the same. I don't need to give you a, a list of opinions. I don't need, need to come up with a, um, a catchy title or, you know, hey, I wonder what would be, wonder what the people want to hear this week. Do you know I never asked that question? I just gave away a secret. When I preach, I never, the, the thought never even crosses my mind. I wonder what people want to hear this week. I don't even think about it. You know why? Because what we want to hear is often not what we need to hear. Let me say that again. What we want to hear is usually not what we need to hear. I I read something just yesterday or maybe the day before. Uh, A quote from one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. says, If your Christianity depends on the preacher's preaching, then you are nowhere near where you need to be. If, if the only spiritual food you eat in a seven-day period is between 10 and 11 on Sunday morning, you're starving to death. And, and you're going you're gonna to die of malnourishment, spiritually speaking. Can, can you even fathom physically? All right, you got one hour on one day every seven days. That's when you're allowed to eat. And that's it. You eat one meal on Sunday morning, and then you're fasting till the next Sunday morning. Can't even imagine that. Can you imagine the terrible health you'd be in? Well, guess what? It's exactly the, th- the same thing spiritually. If, if we don't feast... Why, why do you think I make such a big deal about, hey, we need to all be reading our Bibles every single day. Every day. It's like going a day without going to the dinner table. You wouldn't think of that, would you? Not on purpose. It's the same thing. That's why the very first 
part of the vision of our, our local church here. Read the Bible every day. It's the only way you're going to have a consistent message and a credible witness. And it's the only way we will avoid all these pitfalls of legalism, false teaching. How can we know if someone's leading us the wrong way if we don't know the truth? If we're not well versed in what God says is true, how will we recognize falsehood? Right? We've got to know it. Okay, number three. Not just a consistent message, not just a credible witness. Maintain a gospel-centered fellowship. A gospel-centered fellowship. From verse 6 down to the end of the paragraph, verse 10. The message was right. Right? The church leaders who were of high reputation in man's eyes, because God doesn't show partiality, and He says that, right? God shows the partiality. It's a, a little parenthesis in verse 6. But He says, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. You know what that means? It sounds mean, right? <laughs> At first, you're, what do you mean they contributed? It means they didn't have any problems with the gospel that Paul was preaching. They didn't have to contribute anything to his message. That's what he's saying. They didn't take away or add. He said they, they met together, and so when he says in verse 1 and 2 about how he went to the, um, the leaders of the church and wanted to see if he was running in vain, he wasn't. They didn't contribute anything. So he was good. What he had been preaching all this time was good. And it's a good thing. You know why? Because remember how he said he got the message? Got it from Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, did you expect it to be wrong? He got it direct. He wasn't taught by man. He didn't get it from man. He got it from Jesus. So it, you figure it's going to be right. So they had no changes for the gospel Paul was preaching because the message came from God. It was evident, Paul says, that the gospel had been entrusted to Paul. Now I want to tell you why that's important. The way that's constructed in the, the grammar he uses, I won't bore you with the details, I'll just say this. It's a perfect tense and a passive voice. All that means is when Paul got the gospel, he was entrusted to it. It means it was an action that was done in the past, but the result of it keeps on going forever and ever. So him being entrusted with the gospel had lasting effects, right, as we see through his life. He went everywhere preaching the gospel. And it was passive, which means he didn't go do it. It was done to him, right? He was passive, not active. So that means he received. Jesus gave him the gospel. And it, it, it was never the same. His life was never the same after that. Paul's commission from God was to the Gentiles. And then the Bible says, just as Peter's commission from God was to the Jews. So each of them had a calling to a different group of people, and they went. And they shared the same gospel. But who called them? God did. Interesting word here. I love this. It says in verse 8, He who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, effectually work for me to the Gentiles. So the word there, the Greek word is where we get our word energized. He was energized to do what he was doing. That, that work that God did in his life. It's like, you ever seen the commercials, the Energized Bunny? Just keeps going and going and going, keeps beating that drum, right? Never stops. So think about that. That's the kind of energy and effort God implanted into Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews Take this, don't stop. Keep sharing this truth. So that's what happened. Then we get to verse 9. The pillars of the New Testament church, Peter, James, and John, right? The inner circle. 
they had come to know the grace that had been given to Paul. So, so think about this in, in light of our three points here. A consistent message, a credible witness, and a gospel-centered fellowship. How did they recognize the grace that had been given to Paul? He had a credible witness. He had a consistent message. When he preached the gospel, it was the same gospel every time. He didn't vary from it. When he lived out his message, he was believable. There was evidence that he really did have Jesus in his heart and in his life and leading him in the direction he was going. So they had come to know the grace that had been given to Paul. And here's what they did with that in verse 9. They gave to Paul and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. This is a, a phrase you may have heard in church church language before. But do you know the word? You probably heard it. This might be one of the, the only Greek words that many church people do know. Koinonia. Right? Koinonia. Fellowship. Well, let me tell you a funny thing about that word. True fellowship or community. Listen very clear, carefully to what I'm about to tell you. True gospel-centered Fellowship and community is only possible because of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the only way that happens. So, it's a big deal when Peter, James, and John extend that fellowship, that community to Paul and Barnabas and recognize that they are all indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. They're all preaching the same consistent message. They're all striving for that same believable, credible witness. And they're maintaining the fellowship that has been brought about because of the Holy Spirit. And so the last verse in our passage talks about, well, we don't need to change your message. You're good. We're all preaching the same thing. Just don't forget about the poor. And Paul says, well, I was going to do that anyway. We're all eager to do that. In other words, uh, we're not just going to preach the gospel and let people suffer. We're going to meet physical needs as an opportunity to discuss spiritual needs. Right? We, we've talked about this before. Why, why do we ever go build a, um, a handicap ramp? Or why do we ever go clean up people's yards or, or pick up, you know, a storm comes through and people are out... Uh, unsolicited, just out picking up brush and branches and stuff, clearing stuff out of the way. Why do we do that? If somebody were to ask you why you did why, why what would you tell them? Here's what you should tell them. I don't know what you tell them. Here's what you should tell them. Hey, I didn't, I didn't ask you to do that. Why are you doing that for me? Because Jesus loves you, and He died for your sins. And He loves me, and He died for my sins. I just wanted to tell you that. Because I have no other reason, no other compelling purpose to come help a complete stranger other than the fact, hey, Jesus loves me and He loves you too. I'd be glad to tell you about it. See, that, that's the, the reason. Anybody can do a good deed, but not just anybody can have a purpose for it, to share the Gospel. So let's talk about this as we close. Biblical fellowship. What is this really? I talked about it being only made possible by the Holy Spirit. So remember the opening question first day of school you're in a room full of full of people but you feel different if you're in a room full of people that that you've been to school with for 10 years already or if you're in a room full of people that you've never seen before right 
Did you know you can be in a room full of people and you can still feel all alone? Just being with people doesn't mean fellowship. And this, we got a bunch of people in the room today. That doesn't automatically mean everybody is enjoying fellowship. The only way we can truly enjoy biblical fellowship is because of the Holy Spirit, because of the, the tie that binds, right? why the song was written. We're bound together by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what allows us to have fellowship. Baptists are great at, at meeting and greeting and eating. Right? We got that down. But guess what? That's not necessarily fellowship. You can be in the same room. You can be eating the same food. Doesn't mean you're having fellowship. Fellowship is something that is unique to the Christian because of the Holy Spirit. So when that connection is made by God's Spirit, then we can really experience what God's family is supposed to be like. But it's built on the Gospel. And that's the only way it can happen. So that's the way it was meant to be. When we refer to the church as a family... That's not just a word that's thrown around. That's how it's supposed to be. But it, listen, it can only be like that with the Spirit of God. So if, if you feel like, well, I, just, I don't feel like there's fellowship. I don't, well, that's a chance for us all to do a little examination of ourselves. How am I doing with the Holy Spirit? Am I fighting Him every step of the way? Is, do, I, do, do I possess Him at all? Am I a Christian? Do I believe in Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Because if I am, am I fighting against the work of the Spirit? Am I trying to, to uh, battle instead of being cooperative? And that's a whole different sermon, but as it pertains to our message today, the more we read the Word, the more consistent our message will be. The more we read and have a consistent message, the more credible our witness will be. And the more our message and witness are in agreement, and we're living that way, all of us individually, the sweeter our fellowship will be. Because there's more common bonds that tie us together. And that's how God intended it. That's what makes a church a family. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.